We were recently um, cleaning out some stuff at our house, uh, which included um, some books. And one that in particular caught my attention, it is called, What Do You Do With a Problem? Now, I don't know where this book came from. None of our family is sure who it belongs to. If you gave it to me, I apologize, all right, that I can't remember that. that. But as I flipped through it, I found it interesting. It's, it's, hey, I've got a problem, and where did it come from, and why is this happening to me? What is my problem going to take from me? It builds this uh, story of fear and of worry. Until it gets to a place that I want to read it to you. It says, I realized I had to face it. I had to face the problem. So even though I didn't want to, even though I was really afraid, I got ready and I tackled my problem. And when I got face to face with it, I discovered something. My problem wasn't what I thought it was. I discovered it had something beautiful inside. My problem held an opportunity. It was an opportunity for me to learn and to grow, to be brave, to do something. It showed me that it was important to look closely because some opportunities only come once. So now I see problems differently. I'm not afraid of them anymore because I know their secret. Every problem has an opportunity for something good. You just have to look for it. Now, here's what I found interesting about this little book. It's not a Christian book. There's no scripture attached to it. What it reminded me, though, is that even from a world's perspective, sometimes the world can recognize that within a problem, there is an opportunity. But what we are studying together right now in the first chapter of Philippians, in the kingdom of God, that truth gets even bigger. Because what we're learning is that within every problem, the greatest opportunity in all the world can be found. We're calling this series Happen Stance. I love to play on the words because usually when the word happenstance is used, it's all about luck. That's what people are using. It was sort of like this, this was unlucky in my life, right? It was just happenstance. It just happens. But followers of Jesus, we don't believe in luck. We believe in Jesus, the one who in all things works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. My point is with Jesus... He changes my stance in regards to whatever happens in my life. That because of what he is doing in us, the question is not just, right, does it happen to me? The question is, will I happen 
to it because of what he is doing through me. It's a happen stance. Today, I wanna take you further in that. Wanna thank you for being here today. Thank you for joining in wherever you might be today. We're grateful that uh, through video, we can truly connect with a lot of folks in different places. Um, it It is a strange day around here. It's not often that there's snow on the ground and it's 60 degrees. All right, but that's where we are, so you could go sledding and maybe get a suntan today. I don't know, but that's kind of where we are. But I'm grateful that we could be here. Let me show you what I mean. Philippians chapter 1, let's back up to verse 12. That's where this section starts. Look at what Paul says. Paul writing to some Jesus followers in a place called Philippi. That's why it's the book of Philippians. Here's what he says. I want you to know. Brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. So I told you last week we got a purpose here. Paul, this is really a big reason of why Paul's writing this book. He knows that the believers in Philippi are worried about him because they know what has happened to him. They know what's happened to him. What's happened to him is he's in prison. That's his problem. And they're worried that, that, right, what's Paul going through? And here's what he wants them to know. He wants them to know that his problem has actually led to something greater. His problem has led because of a promise of God. The promise of God that Paul stated back in verse 6, right, that whatever God starts, he what? He finishes. When it comes to his purposes, when it comes to the good news of Jesus moving forward, what Paul wants us to see is that God makes everything that happens to me a means to advance the gospel. Everything that happens to me, it is not defeating. It actually becomes a means for the good news of Jesus to go forward. When we ask, how can that be? Well, that's what Paul shows us in the verses that follow. God finishes what he starts. Yeah, but what if I get thrown in prison? God finishes what he starts. Watch what he says in verse 13. As a result, here's the evidence. It has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. Through prison, the good news of Jesus is spreading to those who have not yet heard it. A part of those was the palace guard. These are the emperor's elite soldiers. I mean, these guys, they really started with with, um, um, the emperor around the time of of Jesus' birth. They, They grew into just more and more and more power. What's happening here, they are assigned to guard Paul. 
On a regular basis, Paul is speaking of who? Jesus. He's sharing the greatest news that he knows. Well, what, what suddenly happens is those, those who are guarding him, they go home. And when they go home, they, they talk about what they're hearing from this man in prison. The, the language in this verse is not only the palace guard, but, but, but it's that, that everyone in Rome is hearing this news. Now, I want you to understand, it wasn't just Paul's ability to articulate the gospel that impacted them. And it wasn't just his continued character of, of graciousness and love and conviction that impacted them. It was that all of the truth that he's giving them and all of this character that he's demonstrating to them happens in deep affliction. It is the context that is rattling the souls of that palace guard. Because they know what Paul's going through. They know the predicament that he's in. They know that if Nero says, head on the block, Paul's done. They know Paul knows it. They know it. And yet they are watching him continue to love Jesus with all of his heart, all of his soul, all of his mind. We know that for two years, two years, the book of Acts told us, remember Paul under house arrest, people would come to the house and, and, and he would teach. And then what happens? Those people go back out. Well, between the palace guard and, and the group showing up to hear him, I mean, the news is just spreading across the city of Rome to those not yet in the kingdom of God, they see the evidence clearly from Paul's life. Jesus is most valuable. That's what they're seeing. Even in prison, Paul's like, Jesus matters more to me than anything. When he's going through the problems, Jesus matters more to me than anything. He endures pain saying Jesus matters more to me than anything. Those who are not yet in the kingdom of God are seeing this truth clearly. But today I'm taking you a step further. There's an even bigger impact. Check out verse 14. And because of my chains... Most of the brothers and sisters have become confident in the Lord and dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. Now, verse 13 said, those outside the family of God, 
Those who have not heard the good news of Jesus, like the palace guard, like the people of Rome, right? They saw clearly this truth. But you know what verse 14 tells us? Verse 14 tells us it wasn't just those outside the family of God that were affected. It was also the brothers and sisters inside the family of God who saw clearly from Paul's life that Jesus is most valuable. It was even the church, it was even the believers who were affected by this. Paul is going to describe it this way in Philippians chapter 3. We will get there sometime, I don't know, by fall probably. But this is how he says it in verse 7 of Philippians chapter 3. But whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because, check this out, of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Jesus is most valuable. For whose sake I have lost all things, I consider them garbage. There's a word that we'll learn when we get there that's attached to that. That I may gain Christ. To borrow a little language from last year, Paul's saying, I got nothing to lose. I got nothing to lose. You could take everything from me, I still got nothing to lose when I have what's most valuable to me, who is Jesus. Go back to verse 14, and I want you to see a couple of phrases there. He says, and because of my chains, most of the brothers and sisters, so Paul's example has affected the majority of the body. Apparently not quite all, but that wouldn't be a shock to us, all right? Most of them, though, are affected by him. How are they affected? Most of the brothers and sisters have become confident in the Lord and dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. The language here is that they are persuaded. That's the language. They have become persuaded. And what is it that persuaded them? It was watching Paul. It was actually watching God work through Paul. It was watching Paul in prison and yet watching God push the gospel forward. Watching Paul chained to these palace guard and then watch, watching guard after guard become followers of Jesus. They're watching God work through Paul in the middle of the problem and they become persuaded. And as a result of being persuaded, they become more confident, it says, in the Lord, which results in them proclaiming the gospel without fear. Now, apparently, apparently they had some courage. And I would say every real follower of Jesus, when the Holy Spirit dwells in you, there is a boldness that is birthed there. When you really belong to Jesus, there is a courage present. But for those in Philippi, 
right? There, there, there is a struggling courage. Understandably so. The, 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 the hostility that is being directed toward Christians, right? And not even just where they were, but, but around the world. But when they saw, when they saw what God did through Paul in prison, but faithfully declaring the gospel, reaching the palace guard, reaching beyond, it changed something in them. One of the writers that I read this week said they were infected with the contagion of Paul's heroism. Yeah. Do you know that as a follower of Jesus, God, his design is to use the courage of other followers of Jesus to build courage in you? He does. God will use other brothers and sisters in his family who have a courage with the good news of Jesus, he will use their courage, their boldness, to help encourage boldness in you. And do you realize that God's design is to use boldness for the gospel in your life in order to encourage others in his family? to grow also in their courage. See, I, I think these, these Jesus followers, they already know that Jesus is most valuable. They know that. They know he's most valuable because they've met him. They've met Jesus. They, they, have, they have given their life to him. They, they have recognized who he is. They, they, they know Jesus is most valuable, but they struggle to act on it. But God's design of with, that God together brings encouragement and confidence. I love that phrase, confidence in Jesus. I've been thinking about it this week. It's like, what does that mean? I'm going to give you a little list. I know it's not exhaustive, but I'm going to tell you how I apply this in my life when I think about a confidence in Jesus. It means that Jesus is real for me. And I'm asking you, is Jesus real for you? Now, he is real. That's not the question. It's, it's is he real for you? Where the religious games are over, where church becomes more than just a, a, a social gathering where you know there are some good people and you, you like to, to be able to hang out and get to know people. No, this is a confidence in Jesus because Jesus is real. This is real. It also means my sins are forgiven because of Jesus. A confidence in him that he has forgiven everything that I have ever done. There is nothing now that stands in the way holding me back from him, holding me back from the life that he calls me to. There is a confidence in Jesus because my sins are forgiven. Therefore, God is for me. That's the confidence. He's not against me. 
God's not holding anything of my past over my head. My God is for me, and my God is sovereign. He is in control of it all, right? I am not at the mercy of luck. I am operating in the mercy of the God who created all things and holds all things together, and glory is coming. Glory is coming. This is not the end. But an end is coming where it will be seen clear. Jesus is most valuable and worth it all. This is what removes fear for me. Why do we struggle, right, so much at times with sharing the gospel? It's because there's warfare going on. There's warfare. An enemy who wants us quiet. But again, God's design with one another where your boldness in the gospel encourages me and my boldness in the gospel can be used to encourage you. And God weaves that together. The result, he, he increases our confidence, increases our boldness in the gospel, and the result is it decreases our fear. We're not afraid of people, not afraid what people can do to us. Not afraid of the consequences of declaring with our lives that Jesus is most valuable. It is possible at times for us to think that life is so much about us that we are blind to how powerfully God desires to use our life to build others up. I'll say that again. Sometimes we can think that life is so much about me that I am blinded to the truth of how much God wants to use my life to build others up. I've been praying for the last week or so of, you know, God, this is all about how you use stories of courage and people with a boldness for the gospel and how God uses that to increase our courage. I'm like, what story do I share? You know, I mean, we got Paul's story, but like, what story should I share? And uh, interesting this week, um, I um, had the privilege of doing a, an interview with one of our um, college students. And so she's doing some, some um, you know, work for, for and, and a part of the interview is a series of questions um, that I was answering about ministry and mission. And one of the questions that was asked of me is, what is your favorite missionary biography? And it just got me thinking, like, what is it? And I, I could give you a, a list of them, but the name that came to mind this week and suddenly became the story that I knew that I thought God wanted me to share today is the story of a missionary named Adoniram Judson. Adoniram 
Judson. And so I'm going to do something different today. This is different than how I would normally do it. I've given you the text today, and I, I think the point for us is really clear. I'm going to tell you a story. So I want to encourage you. We don't just probably listen to two. Our, our stories are loud and stories are fast. I, I want to tell you a story. And my prayer is that God will encourage you today. I need my glasses. It was a cold day in 1812. As a crowd gathered to commission Samuel and Harriet Newell and Adoniram, Adoniram and Anna Judson, commissioning them as missionaries to the unreached. The story is that a couple of years before, Samuel and Adoniram and a couple of other seminary students had petitioned the leaders of Congregationalist churches to send them as missionaries, and after much debate, the churches agreed. That same week, Adoniram just so happened to meet a woman named Anne. Not one to waste time, one month later, he expressed a desire to marry her. All right, never would I give that advice to anyone, all right? But this is what happened. One month later, he expresses a desire to marry her. Her response was that he would have to talk to her dad. So Adoniram wrote her dad the following letter. You ready for this? I have to ask, I have now to ask whether you can consent to part with your daughter early next spring to see her no more in this world. There's an opening line. (laughs) Whether you can consent to her departure to a heathen land and her subjection to the hardships and sufferings of a missionary life. Whether you can consent to her exposure to the dangers of the ocean, to the fatal influence of the southern climate of India, to every kind of want and distress, to degradation, insult, persecution, and perhaps a violent death. Can you consent to all this for the sake of him who left his heavenly home and died for her and for you, for the sake of perishing immortal souls, for the sake of Zion and the glory of God? Can you consent to all this in hope of soon meeting your daughter in the world of glory with a crown of righteousness brightened by the acclamations of praise which shall resound to her Savior from heathen saved through her means from eternal woe and despair? (laughs) I imagine him signing it respectfully at an arm, right? (laughs) Anne's dad said, Anne, it's up to you. And she said, yes. And not long thereafter, they were sailing on a 114-day trip to India. Can we praise God for planes, right? Their plans from India were to go on to Burma. 
On the ship, Judson had plenty of time to read and study, and uh, he was working on a translation of the Greek New Testament into English when he became especially interested in the word baptism. As a congregationalist, remember, he had been baptized as a baby by sprinkling, but the more he looked at his Bible and the more he thought, baptism is for believers by immersion, as he realized the ramifications of what he was studying. He looked at Anne one day and said, I am afraid the Baptist may be right. But he was a congregationalist, remember? And they had sent him to do the ministry in a congregationalist way, a way which he could no longer follow. And so when they arrived in India, Judson connected with a brother named William Carey, and he and Anne were baptized as believers. That immediately led him to start writing letters, first letter to the congregationalists back home, letting them know that their first American missionary was now a Baptist. And then, two, letting the Baptists back home know that, surprise, they now had missionaries who needed support. Before long, Luther Rice, for health reasons, would have to return to the States, and there he started a concentrated effort to raise funds for Baptist missionaries. In 1814, a Baptist missionary society was established called the General Missionary Convention of the Baptist Denomination in the United States of America for Foreign Mission. I am glad now it's called the IMB, not the GMCBDUSAFM, all right? (laughs) Meanwhile, the Judsons had another problem. As soon as they had arrived in India, everybody told them you can't go to Burma. Ship captains, government officials, missionaries, even William Carey said, you got to get Burma out of your mind. The country is ruled by a despot. That they, They're known for savage, barbaric practices. They have no religious toler- toleration. You just can't survive there. Every missionary who had gone to Burma had either died or left. But this did not determine or deter the Judsons. They found a ship sailing for Rangoon, And against everybody's counsel, they jumped on board. Anne was pregnant. And just a few days into the journey, she gave birth to a baby born dead. The trip to Burma had hardly begun. And they were burying their first child at sea. When they arrived to shore, they found a land filled with swarming crowds, Buddhist temples, leprous beggars, and children running around with no clothes while smoking cigars like they were adults. Immediately, they started learning the language. As soon as possible, they started working on translating the Bible into Burmese. They settled in the life at Rangoon, and less than two years later, another child was born. Roger was the the pride of his parents and the, the first white baby the Burmese had ever seen. For six months, he was healthy. But then he started getting fevers at night. This turned into loud, heavy breathing and coughing fits. Around two o'clock one morning, 
Adoniram was up with him trying to calm him by feeding him and baby Roger seemed to respond well. Adoniram laid him down in the cradle where he slept with ease for about a half an hour and then he stopped breathing. That same day, Adoniram dug a grave for his six-month-old baby boy and wrote, our hearts were bound up in this child. We felt he was our earthly all, our only source of innocent recreation in this heathen land. Well, Anne and her husband threw themselves into ministry. They're sharing the gospel. They're translating the scriptures, and they started a Zayat. Uh, Zayats were these small shelters on the, the side of the road where the Buddhist teachers would teach. And so the Judsons thought, why not start one? So on April 4th, 1819, the first service was held at the First Baptist Zayat. Fifteen adults and a bunch of naked kids smoking cigars. Six years after landing at Rangoon, the Judsons saw the first Burmese person baptized. Let me say that again. Six years. One. The next year, they had a church for about 10 Burmese. Anne, however, was sick. And they decided she needed relief from Burma's tropical climate. So Adoniram sent his wife off on a ship back to America where she could recover. And at the same time, she could raise awareness for the need for more gospel work in that part of the world. Anne would be gone from her husband for two years. By the time she returned... Adoniram had finished the translation of of the Burmese New Testament, but trouble came soon after that. The British invaded Burma in 1824. And when they did, suddenly every foreigner in the country was suspected of being a spy. One night, Adoniram and Anna were, 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 were getting ready to sit down for dinner when the, the door busted open and a dozen Burmese rushed in, asking the question, where is the teacher? And Adoniram stepped front. Immediately, he was thrown to the floor and tied up with an instrument designed for torture. Anne clung to him until the officers dragged him away from her. He was taken away to the courthouse where he was consigned to the death prison. When he got to the prison, his ankles were fastened with three pairs of fetters. He he was thrown to the ground, dragged into a windowless room, 30 feet wide, 40 feet long, with 50 prisoners on the floor, some of whom he knew. That night, the prison guards lowered a long horizontal bamboo pole Down from the ceiling, they fastened the prisoner's legs around it, and then they raised the pole so that only the prisoner's shoulders and heads were on the floor. They would sleep with their feet in the air that night and every night thereafter. And immediately 
began working nonstop for Adoniram's release. When, when her efforts were rebuffed, she, she gave bribes to earn at least five minutes of being able to, to be with him. The first time she saw him, he came crawling out of the prison, hardly recognizable. She would bring him tea and rice as often as she could. And before long, in one of these brief visits, she finally told him the news. She was pregnant. Adoniram languished in prison day after day for the next 11 months, and baby Maria was born. The time came for the prisoners to be transferred to a more rural place commonly known for executing prisoners. And as they were led to that place, one biography said of these men, no one who had known them when they entered the prison could possibly have recognized them when they left. Their hair was matted, their, their eyes hollow, their body skin-covered skeletons, clothed in rags so greasy and tattered their original purpose could not even be suspected. They could scarcely hobble. Anne moved to a house closer to the prison from which she could bring food and supplies to him. But during that time, she also became ill, and so did Maria. The baby wasn't getting the nourishment that she needed, and Anne was so sick that she had no milk to give. So Adoniram received permission to go each night under guard from house to house in the village nearby, begging Burmese mothers to nurse his daughter. By God's grace, Anne and Maria lived. And then by God's grace, the Burmese government decided they needed some translators for their negotiations with the British, so Adoniram was released to help. And, and eventually, it led to his complete freedom. I mean, in a way they once thought was never going to be possible again, this family had a fresh start. They moved to Amherst, and they settled into a new home. Adoniram needed to travel to the embassy, and so he left Anne, settled in Amherst, and set out for a few months' voyage. Anne wrote him a letter soon after saying, I finally feel home. She said, when I asked Maria where Papa is, he, she, she jumps up and points toward the sea. Take care of yourself. May God preserve and bless you and restore you in safety to your home. This is the prayer of your affectionate Anne. But another letter from Anne was a long time in coming. And Adoniram wondered what was wrong. He received word that baby Maria had gotten sick, and his heart sunk one day when a man showed up with a letter sealed in black. The man said, I'm sorry to inform you of the death of your child. Adoniram went aside to read the letter alone. He longed to be with Anne, to be able to hold her and comfort her in the loss of their third child. But as he sat down and opened the letter, he began to read words that stunned him to silence. The letter ended with these words. Mrs. Judson is no more. His jaw dropped. He couldn't move. He read it over and over and over again, unable to believe the words that were before him. It was not actually his baby, but his wife 
who had had the violent fever and did not recover. He began to cry softly at first and then with loud, uncontrollable sobbing as the reality set in. His wife had been buried a month before he even knew she was dead. Judson couldn't wait to get back home. At least his two-year-old daughter was still alive. But little did he know that once he got back four days later, little Maria would join her mom in death. Adoniram wrote, I am left alone in this wide world. My own dear family I have buried, one in Rangoon, two in Amherst. Adoniram resumed his work preaching and translating, but he couldn't escape a growing sense of despair in his soul. He gradually secluded himself as he sunk into depression. He dug an empty grave and sat beside it every day. He was struggling with his faith. And at one point he wrote, God to me is the great unknown. I believe in him, but I find him not. But much like Elijah in 1 Kings chapter 19, God met Judson where he was and he slowly restored his faith. That restoration was evident when the spouse of another missionary died. Her name was Sarah Boardman. She saw her husband die of sickness in another part of Burma. Adoniram wrote to her and he said, You are now drinking the bitter cup whose dregs I am somewhat acquainted with. And I venture to say that it is far more bitter than you expected. But then he said, take the bitter cup with both hands and sit down to your repast. You will soon learn a secret that there is sweetness at the bottom. At the end of the letter, Judson encouraged Sarah Boardman to stay in Burma and continue the work. Judson likewise re-entered ministry with a renewed zeal and the Lord began to bless. It had taken nine years to baptize 18 converts. Nine years. But now in 1831, they saw 217 people baptized as they put their faith in Jesus. And the next year, 126 more. What if God's blessing in our ministry doesn't often come until after deep suffering in our lives? Judson recommitted himself to finish the Burmese Bible, and finally, seven years after Anne's death, the translation was complete. Now what he thought, and it just so happened that a couple of weeks after finishing the translation, Judson received a, a letter from Sarah Boardman. She congratulated him on finishing it, right, and, and saying that it was valuable not only for the Burmese, but also for their own soul. And Judson began to think, wait a minute, here's a woman traveling through tiger-filled Burmese jungles proclaiming the gospel. She's alone. I'm alone. Why don't we do this together? Again, not one to waste time. He wrote her about a month after her letter to him. Follow this timeline. He left on April 1st. He arrived April 6th. And on April 10th, they were married. 
Some single guy in this room wants that plan right there, right? The newly married couple, they thrust themselves into ministry. They're preaching, they're discipling, they're improving the translations, and they're having babies. In all, they had eight. Eight children Adoniram had with Sarah. Six of them lived, which again means two to nine. But Sarah's body was weak. Her only hope of recovery was a voyage back to the United States. He didn't want to send her alone. They ended up allowing three of their youngest children to stay in Burma with people that that they were close to there. They took the three older ones with them on the ship. But it soon became very apparent that um, Sarah was near the end of her pilgrimage. He said, I sat alone by the side of her bed during the hours of the night endeavoring to administer relief to the distressed body and consolation to the departing soul. At two in the morning, wishing to obtain one more token of recognition, I aroused her attention and I said to her, do you still love the Savior? Oh, yes, she replied. I ever love the Lord Jesus Christ. He said, do you still love me? She said in an in, in, in affirmation, a particular expression of her own, yes, and she gave me one more kiss. We exchanged that token of love for the last time. Another hour passed, and she breathed her last breath. He said, for a moment, I traced her upward flight and thought of the wonders which were opening to her. I then closed her sightless eyes, dressed her for the last time in the drapery of death, and being quite exhausted with many sleepless nights, I threw myself down and slept. The next morning, Sarah was buried on the coast. The next stop for him was America. It had been 33 years since he had left with Anne. All of those who went with him had died. He only knew a few friends, a few family that he would correspond with what he was gone. He was looking forward to some quiet days. Little did this man know that while he was gone, thousands of sermons had been preached telling his story. Hundreds of thousands of prayers had been offered for him. And thousands of parents had named their sons Adoniram. He was welcomed with wild fanfare in a way that made him really uncomfortable. Everywhere he went, people would ask him to preach, but what they really wanted was tell stories. He would disappoint them because all he wanted to do was preach the gospel. He was also discouraged with the division that he found in the church. It was 1845, and slavery was beginning to divide the country, which was also having effect on sending missionaries. Some of the Baptist churches refused to appoint slaveholders as missionaries, which caused the southern churches to separate and start their own convention called the Southern Baptist Convention. In other words, while Judson was his sea on his way back to America, we were withdrawing our support for him, from him because of our support for slavery. He quickly tired of travel. One day he found himself on a train headed to Philadelphia for a mission conviction. 
a man handed him a, a book um, by a woman by the name of Fanny Forrester. Um, her actual name was Emily Chubbuck, but apparently people don't read books by Emily Chubbuck the way they do by Fanny Forrester. She was a popular author. Judson really liked the way she wrote. He, he quickly asked, hey, is she a Christian? And the guy said, yeah. In fact, you can meet her because tonight she's going to be a guest at my house. When Judson met her, he was all the more fascinated. And I bet you know where this story's going. <laughs> Less than a month after meeting Emily Chubbuck, a.k.a. Fanny Forrester, Justin asked her to marry and return to Burma. June the 1st, 1846, they, they were married and they sailed back. They were strengthening the churches there, spreading the gospel. Adoniram finished a 600-page dictionary from English to Burmese. But soon after, he became sick, decided he needed to leave in order to recover Emily agreed, but by the time it was set for him to go, they both realized that, that his chance of recovery is slim. As he lay in a bed and looked back on all that he had done, he said, I feel as if I were only just beginning to be prepared for usefulness. He wanted to continue the work for the Burmese, but in the same breath, he would say, when Christ calls me home, I shall go with gladness of a boy bounding away from his school. The day finally came. Emily sent her husband off to sea. Within days, he would breathe his last breath. The ship's carpenter constructed a coffin Sand was poured into it to make it sink. His body placed inside, they, they nailed the top shut, and slowly it set into the sea west of the Burmese mountains. And this was the last sight of a man who once prayed. One prayer, my God, thy will be done. Only one boon I crave, to finish well my work and rest within a Burma grave. How beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. So many quotes from Adoniram Judson. One of his quotes said, if, if you succeed without sacrifice, it is because someone has suffered before you. If you sacrifice without success, it is because someone will succeed after you. Can I tell you that I think about that quote every time I have set foot in the Project Nick shelter in Myanmar, which was Burma, where 125 kids are growing up every day hearing the good news of Jesus about a king who wants them even when nobody else seems to want them. I think of Adoniram Judson, who for 38 years served in Burma, lost two wives and seven children. But now in that country, more than three million 
Jesus followers live in the midst of a Buddhist territory. But my favorite quote, my favorite quote came in the context of a Burmese jail. Remember the pole, feet in the air. And this is what Adoniram Judson said. The future is as bright as the promises of God. The future is as bright as the promises of God. Why in the world would a man say that? In fetters hanging upside down in a Burmese jail for which he has done nothing wrong. Because Adoniram Judson is a man who believed that what God starts, he finishes. And whether I live or whether I die, he finishes. The promises of God. I've hung out there a lot lately. Ever since Larry passed away, I miss him. Larry loved a song called Promises. Though the storms may come and the winds may blow, I'll remain steadfast. And let my heart learn when you speak a word, it will come to pass. Great is your faithfulness to me. I listen to that song a lot these days. And I tell you a story today. For one reason, may God increase your courage. May God increase your boldness. Most of us probably will not be called to full-time mission in Burma. But I'm asking Will you walk across the street and will you boldly tell your neighbor that Jesus is most valuable? And whatever you think that will cost you, may the story of a man who believed with all his soul in the promises of God, may God use his story to make your feet beautiful too. Students, will you stop playing games? And will you boldly speak to the friends that God has connected you to through your school? At the end of the day, only one thing's going to matter. Do they know Jesus?
the most important thing won't even be if they like you. Do they know Jesus? In the end, it is eternal. This is eternal to those of who you work with, to those who you play with, to those who are your family without fear because you know that Jesus' most valuable will you speak Jesus. What God has put in you, may he grow because what he starts, he will finish. I love you guys. Thanks for letting me tell you a story. Now, May God add a chapter to the story that he is writing. That from the chapter he writes with your life, many more who follow will be encouraged. God, this is just one, one story. One story out of the thousands and thousands that you have written, that you have crafted. God, I thank you for letting us spend a few minutes today to just remember. But it's more than just a story today because of the truth that we read from your word today. God, you use, you use the example of those who trust you. You use the example of those who are bold, even those who go through great struggle, those who experience great loss. God, you use that to encourage. And I pray today that your family, your kids, God, everyone who is hearing my voice today, God, may you stir our soul that we will share boldly this truth. We know that Jesus is more valuable than everything. God, I pray today that it will not become a, a, a guilt factor. God, it, it will not. Be, God, you will stir within us a joy that we will share because we stand in your love. It's in the name of Jesus that I thank you. Amen.